Hi, listeners. Before we begin the last episodes of the season, I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to Season 1 of Ed Infinitum. This podcast has been a lot of fun to make, and it's also been a lot of work. It takes time to research and write scripts, to record and edit, all that stuff. Which is why I also want to take a moment to ask that, if you've enjoyed the fruits of my labors, please go to www.ed-infinitum.com and make a donation to support us. I never envisioned Ed Infinitum as a profit engine. Really, I'm mainly looking to recoup what I've spent on podcast hosting fees and equipment purchases, and anything else would be icing on the cake. Ed Infinitum is a labor of love, but if it's a labor of love that never brings in any income, I'm afraid it's going to lose out to those labors which do. Whether it's a one-time donation or becoming a regular patron, your financial support will enable me to make season two, and who knows how many seasons after that. Again, the website is www.ed-infinitum.com. Click on support the show at the top of the page. Okay, pitch over. On with the season finale. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 1, Episode 12, The Insane Secret History of the SATs, Part 1. If you went to college or are planning to do so, there's no way you haven't heard about and possibly trembled in at least some fear of the SAT exams. As recently as 10 years ago, 95% of colleges and universities either required or recommended the SAT or ACT exams for admissions, and 60% ranked them as, quote, of considerable importance, unquote. Now, that's dropped precipitously in the last decade. As of 2019, only 60% of schools require them, but that's still more than half. A lot of the schools that have dropped them as a requirement still list them as optional, so although some of the wind has been taken out of the SAT's sales, they are still a force to be reckoned with. So where did this mysterious test arise from? How did it grow to command such power and authority, and... How, very recently, has it perhaps started to fall from grace? Sit back and listen, friends, to this tale of marvels, wonders, and horrors. The insane secret history of the SATs. Or, if you prefer, how a bunch of white guys from privileged backgrounds tried to save America from even richer white guys from privileged backgrounds, and after a long story, including Nazis, communists, and hot dogs, got surprised when things ended up taking an ironic turn. I have to say at the outset here that although this episode is informed by research from a number of sources, it leans very heavily on New York Times author Nicholas Lemon's gigantic tome, The Big Test, 416 pages of sheer SAT-related insanity, which I highly recommend. It does get bogged down in the affirmative action debate towards the last third of the book, but it's still a surprisingly engaging read that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a book about standardized testing. All right. That out of the way, grab your number two pencil, dope mark outside the bubbles, and wait until the proctor says you can start before we begin. We are going to begin way back in the Great Depression, with hundreds of thousands out of work, and a government that didn't seem capable of adequately responding. Public confidence in American leaders was rapidly falling. What avenues for escaping poverty did most Americans have? Well, one thing was pretty certain. It probably wasn't a college education. These days, about 41% of all Americans aged 18 to 24 attend college, even if they don't complete it. 55% of American college students are women, 33% are African American, Latinx, or Asian, and 66% receive some form of financial aid. A college degree is a prerequisite for nearly any professional job, 
and college and education in general is viewed as a vital part of achieving the American dream, rising in social status and wealth, so much so that today over 37 million Americans carry debt from college loans, I'm one of them, for a total of one and a half trillion dollars combined. The average American carries a debt with them of anywhere between 17,000 and 45,000, depending on how you figure it, that they owe for some aspect of their higher education. That's college now, but college back during the Great Depression looked very different. Only about 8% of American men and 5% of American women were enrolled in college back then, and fewer than 35% of Americans even completed high school. Nearly all college students were white, male, and from wealthy families. College was not seen as a path to professional and financial success, more like a social club for already wealthy people who didn't have to worry too much about having actual jobs. In Lemon's words, college was assumed to be for privileged people who had no interest in rising in the business world, or for people training for one of the prestigious, but then not very high-paying professions of law, medicine, the church, diplomacy, or the armed forces. Conversely, worldly success was assumed not to require educational credentials, unquote. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and the like weren't seen as academic powerhouses back then. You didn't need good grades to get in or to stay in. Not if you had the money, anyway. They were basically the on-ramps for kids from wealthy, influential families to have a little fun and make some connections before assuming their intended roles as the movers and shakers of the nation. But remember, the nation, for most Americans, was in the process of sinking and falling apart. The USA was clearly in need of better leaders. And two men decided it was their job to make that happen. They were Henry Chauncey and James Bryant Conant. Two men, neither of whom were born particularly rich, although well-off compared to much of the rest of the country. They would become the parents of the SATs. So just who were these mystery men? Henry Chauncey, born in 1905, was from an old-line Puritan Episcopal family, but one which lost all its money through squandering it in the extravagant living of the early 20th century. Henry, as was expected of someone from his social class, attended Groton, an elite boys' private school with a reputation as a feeder school for Harvard and Yale. But his family couldn't afford to keep up with the tuition, and only barely managed to scrape up the necessary funds. Unlike his wealthy classmates who went on to Ivy League colleges, Henry attended Ohio State University, as a scholarship student. He eventually did attend Harvard, where he was dismayed and frustrated at how, in his opinion, the school was full of not very bright rich guys who just partied all the time. Here's a quote from Chauncey at age 26. Now, one of my biggest ideas, which isn't new or astounding, is that schools and colleges should aim to develop character as well as knowledge. I am interested in the complete reorientation and reorganization of school aims and methods. Unquote. The question was, how? Well, Chauncey was born at the right time, as it were, to fall into the influence of the newest scientific craze sweeping academia, the IQ test, invented by Binet around the time that Chauncey was born. But its use was mainly restricted to the military. Chauncey had just become assistant dean at Harvard and was mulling these ideas around when James Conant, the new president, invited him to a special meeting. Conant, about a decade older than Chauncey, was the son of a photo engraver who successfully earned scholarships based on his grades and attended Roxbury Latin School, and then found his way to Harvard. He studied chemistry, and by serving in World War I, got the chance to tour Europe and study with famous scientists there. He went on to become a nationally recognized scientist and professor himself, and by the time he became president of Harvard in 1933, he had all kinds of ideas about instituting changes and reforms. 
He wanted to make Harvard an exclusive institution focused on intellectual achievement, which at that time it really wasn't. Here's a quote from Konitz. I believe there are too many rather than too few students attending the universities of this country. He felt that they should weed out maybe one half of them and, quote, put others of more talent in their place, unquote. So that was the mission that Conant was seeking his new assistant dean's help with, redesigning the way in which Harvard granted scholarships. Until now, the scholarships Harvard offered were very few, and most scholarship students were ridiculed and worked second jobs. They couldn't even live on campus. Conant wanted to institute full four-year scholarships, housing included. Furthermore, he wanted academic merit to be the basis on which these scholarships were awarded. Chauncey and Conant decided that they wanted anyone who had the intelligence to be able to attend Harvard, not just those who were rich. They wanted Harvard to draw students from all over the country, not just New England and New York, where most of their population came from at the time. There was one major problem, however. How were Conant and Chauncey supposed to find and identify these intelligent, but not necessarily wealthy students, scattered across the country as they were? Remember, as this podcast detailed way back in our first episode, we don't have in the United States a single system of public education. We instead have thousands and thousands of school districts, each of which was run by its own school board, and according to different standards. Harvard had an admissions test already, called the College Boards, but it was geared entirely to test knowledge of private boarding school curriculum, which didn't really line up with what most public schools taught. Clearly, some sort of universal test of native intelligence was needed. Remember, Chauncey was from the first generation to grow up with the IQ test, and he had by now made a name for himself as an expert on such testing. And his timing couldn't have been better, because the American scientific community was in the midst of an exciting popular fever for a brand new science called eugenics. That's right, eugenics, that field of study that attempted to perfect the human being by selecting people with ideal qualities, letting them have many children, and getting rid of people with undesirable qualities. In this way, said eugenicists, the human race would be improved. After all, it worked for animal breeders, right? This put Chauncey and the company, at least intellectually, of some rather sketchy scientific dudes. Take, for example, Mr. Madison Grant, lawyer, zoologist, and pretty much the guy who invented the concept of scientific racism. In Grant's words, eugenics was, quote, a rigid system of selection through the elimination of those who are weak or unfit. In other words, social failures would solve the whole question in 100 years as well as enable us to get rid of the undesirables who crowd our jails, hospitals, and insane asylums. The state, through sterilization, must see to it that his line stops with him, or else future generations will be cursed with an ever-increasing load of misguided sentimentalism. This is a practical merciful and inevitable solution of the whole problem, and can be applied to an ever-widening circle of social discards, beginning always with the criminal, the diseased, and the insane, and extending gradually to types which may be called weaklings rather than defectives, and perhaps ultimately to worthless race types. End quote. Holy cow, that's pretty much Pastor Martin Niemöller's poem about first they came for the trade unionists, only as an aspirational instruction manual. Although as callous and cavalier as Grant seems to be about all the types of human beings that he finds unworthy, he also was the guy who founded the Save the Redwoods League. So I guess he liked trees. Go figure. Other folks who Chauncey would probably have read included Charles W. Gould, author of America, A Family Matter, 
a book published in 1922 that advocated for the maintenance of racial purity in America and the inherent supremacy of the Nordic race, full of such gems as, quote, physically fine specimens of the race of man are just as much the result of careful breeding as physically fine specimens among the animals. A mongrel people never attain any real prosperity, end quote. But the man who got Chauncey's attention the most was Princeton psychology professor Carl Brigham, who would eventually go on to create the SAT at Chauncey and Conan's request. We'll get back to him later because he's complicated, but at this stage of the story, he is all in on the eugenics fad. He wrote, quote, American intelligence is declining and will proceed with an accelerating rate as racial admixture becomes more and more extensive, end quote. And that's really where Chauncey and Conant felt that eugenics dovetailed with their own question, how to cull and develop the best and brightest Americans. A noble goal, if you choose to ignore the fact that the movement that inspired them so, also inspired this guy. But hey, what's a little Nazism among friends, eh? Ironically. Adolf Hitler banned in Germany the very IQ tests that eugenicists love so much, because, according to authors Einsnick and Volker, the Fuhrer thought that the concept of intelligence quotient all somehow seemed a little too Jewish. Right. <laughs> anyway, let's zoom back into Brigham. Like Chauncey and Conant, Karl Brigham came from an old-line Protestant family, with roots going all the way back to the Mayflower, and like them, he became an academic, only he went to teach at Princeton. Around the time that Chauncey and Conant were looking for their perfect test for Harvard admissions, Brigham, as well as other famous social scientists like E.L. Thorndike and Lewis Terman, were looking to improve upon and perfect the existing IQ tests developed by Alfred Binet. First the army and then the public schooling system would offer the biggest captive audience for them to try out their new testing ideas. He reached out and made connections with the college board, which at the time was basically a loose confederation of colleges that existed as sort of an academic club to help professors and administrators collaborate on new ideas. Of the 12 institutions of higher learning that participated in the college board at the time, Harvard and Yale weren't even on the list. This group had already helped to field test the IQ tests back in 1901, but only to a very small number of students. But now it's 1926, and Brigham has been helping the army adopt some of these tests, and eventually he renames one of them the Scholastic Aptitude Test, or SAT. The institutions that were a part of the College Board would invite Brigham in to use their students as guinea pigs to try out the tests and see how well they worked. Although the modern SAT calls to mind row after row of multiple-choice questions to be answered by filling in bubbles with a number two pencil, the first SAT tests were actually all essays. Test takers were asked to write about all kinds of subjects, from mathematics to Latin translations to ancient Greek history, and could earn one of five grades. Excellent, good, doubtful, poor, or very poor. Before long, though, Brigham decided to get rid of all those essays and made the tests entirely multiple choice, because multiple choice questions were seen as more objective or scientific. He expanded the tests to include definitions, arithmetic, number series, analogies, logical inference, paragraph analysis, and picture recognition. By the way, essays would not return to the SAT until about 2005. Although today's SAT takers have three hours in which to complete their work, students taking Brigham's test had just 90 minutes to complete 315 questions. 
One thing Brigham had going for him was that, unlike most of his eugenicist buddies, he didn't let ideology get in the way of his principles as a scientist. And the more he collected data, the more he started to question his initial beliefs that white Nordic people were somehow intellectually superior to everyone else. Any researcher will tell you that in order for a test to be accurate, it has to be both reliable and valid. And as Brigham poured over all the results of those eugenicist tests, he found that while they were reliable, in other words, consistent in the kinds of results they gave, they were not any more valid than the existing college board tests, the ones that basically just quizzed you on prep school life, when it came to predicting future grades. Something was clearly up here. He came to understand that there were all kinds of culturally specific references in those standardized tests, say, references to tennis or yachts and regattas, that required not just raw intellect, but also knowledge that was specifically cultural, socioeconomic, or racially bounded. And Brigham was not so insecure that he couldn't admit when he was wrong. From 1930 to 1932, Brigham put together a formal retraction of his earlier writings in support of the IQ tests, and he even called this book he published a study of error. In it, he called his former writing pretentious and without foundation. He said that the whole IQ and SAT testing experiments were, quote, accompanied by one of the most glorious fallacies in the history of science, namely that the tests measured native intelligence purely and simply, without regard to training or schooling. I hope nobody believes that now. The test scores very definitely are a composite, including schooling, family background, familiarity with English, and everything else relevant and irrelevant. The native intelligence hypothesis is dead. End quote. Well, so glad that got cleared up in the 1930s, right? So why isn't our episode about the SAT ending here? Just because Brigham realized the tests were deeply flawed didn't mean that everyone else did. Ironically, the very places that Brigham and others had done their validity testing on the SAT, colleges like Princeton, Yale, Harvard, West Point, they now became very familiar with them and started to think of all kinds of ways in which those tests might one day be used to govern admission. Around this same time, Columbia University professor Benjamin Wood had caught the standardized testing bug and fell in love with the idea that these tests might one day improve the quality of teaching and learning, not just in higher education, but in K-12 as well. His big coup was convincing the New York State regents to adopt an SAT-like format. Then he went on in 1935 to create the GREs. Wood was an interesting guy. On the one hand, he was a firm believer in what we would today call student-centered learning practices. Here's a quote from him to that effect. A child's mind is not an empty basket to receive what the teacher pours in it. The tragedy of education today is that teachers teach children prescribed courses laid down by supervisors who have set themselves up as tin gods and who couldn't care less about students as individuals. Our schools are turning out intellectual paupers who come to depend on the teacher. Curiosity is a precious gift, and we must be careful not to vaccinate the child against it. End quote. So yeah, these do not seem like the words of a man who would love standardized testing. But... Human beings are sometimes full of contradictions, and it turned out that Wood was also an inveterate elitist. He saw himself as tasked with winnowing down the college population to just the true elite the graduates from high school. And here's another quote from him. Do you really believe that more than 20%, if that many, of the high school population has the ability to learn principles and apply them to new problems? End quote. Unsurprisingly, Wood and Carl Brigham became bitter rivals, as only academics can. 
the weird thing was that this time, something was actually at stake. Nothing less than the educational future of millions of students for the next hundred years. Wood didn't trust teachers to accurately assess students' capabilities. Remember, he saw them as just puppets of their tin god supervisors. So his love of standardized tests stemmed in part from his desire to find some more advanced and reliable way of testing students that cut the teacher out of the equation. And yet, ironically, it was a high school science teacher named Reynold Johnson who really made such standardized tests possible. He took a look at Wood's tests and, in his spare time, invented an electronic mechanical test scoring machine that sensed pencil marks on the forms that Wood had come up with. Johnson called his invention the Markograph, and it was the granddaddy of today's Scantron machine. Now, before you start cursing Johnson's name for all time, you should know that he did invent some pretty awesome things, too, like the video cassette and the first hard disk drive. He went on to work for IBM and had all kinds of other adventures that we won't detail here. Anyway, we've now caught up with Chauncey and Conan's story, because as they're searching for their perfect Harvard admission test, the one that's going to ensure that not just lazy rich kids, but bright people from all across the socioeconomic spectrum of America have a chance at a Harvard education, and they have a choice to pick either Brigham or Wood to join their team. They pick Brigham. Despite Brigham's repeated insistence that the SATs did not measure native intelligence, Conan went forward and used a version of that very test to determine the admission of scholarship students at Harvard. And then after three years, the trend spread across the Ivy League. As to those sticky questions about the test's validity, well, most college presidents didn't think it was that much of a big deal. After all, scholarship students remained only a small part of their student population at the time. Conant, in fact, became so enamored with the SAT that he soon founded an agency called the Educational Testing Service, or ETS, with the express goal of standardizing all of the various versions of the SAT that were floating out there, Brigham's, Woods, and a few others. Brigham's partnership with these two men doesn't last long. After getting tired of them ignoring his concerns, Brigham quits, objecting to the fact that ETS has an inherent conflict of interest. Since it owns the rights to the tests, it was inevitable, he felt, that it would become selfishly more interested in promoting those tests than ensuring their accuracy. Did history prove him right? Well, that's where we'll pick up in part two. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great! You get to hear today's educational intriguing fact. The nation of Bangladesh is home to no fewer than 100 boat schools. Since annual flooding can disrupt school for hundreds of thousands of students in some areas, and rivers can rise as much as 4 meters or 12 feet, schools are conducted upon boats. Each one apparently has internet access, a library, and solar power. Bye now.